welcome to All Talk Oncology. I'm your host, Kenny Perkins, a.k.a. The Cancer Guy. Hello, hello, hello. This is Kenny Perkins, a.k.a. Your Cancer Guy. And here we are again today with another phenomenal guest. I say phenomenal because she is, she is an entrepreneur. She is someone who I, te- I think her story is going to resonate with you, especially if you have gone through many trials, which a lot of my clients and a lot of my listeners have, you know, and if you're looking for a way to see the light through all those trials, our next guest is going to be able to bring that to you. So without further ado, we travel a little bit to South Carolina, right here in the U.S., and we are happy and privileged to bring our next guest. Please give me a round of applause for our next guest, Lawrence Harpley. Hey. Hello, hello. South Carolina. The way you said it, travel back in time to stuff, but that's so appropriate. <laughs> We're going to travel all the way down to South Carolina. Boy, I'm from California. You know, the South I know. on that part, it's like, it's different for me. You know? Why are we here? People live here how? <laughs> Who, when, where? I get it. You know, my father's there. My father's been there. He was like, "It's a phenomenal place. You got to come out, check out Myrtle Beach, blah blah blah." You know, so I definitely got to get out there now, especially now I know you're out there too. There are pockets that are acceptable, and that is what I will say about the South. <laughs> Just find a pocket. <laughs> okay, you know. Yeah. I'll always go with a tour guide. That's why I say go with a tour guide and can never go wrong and can never end up in the wrong place. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, Lauren, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's, it's a privilege. You know, you are a phenomenal individual and I believe you just gave birth, what, five weeks ago as well? Yes. I just had my daughter, Lucy, five weeks ago and she's everything. You know, did it one more time. So I've got the two. Yes. And we're going to get into that story a little bit because we're going to talk about why why she's such an amazing individual. Yeah. You know, and second, we're going to talk a little bit about that. But before we get into it, let's let's jump into who Lauren is. Like, what was Lauren doing before she found out about a diagnosis? Uh, Lauren was baking banana bread and doing sourdough starters and working out twice a day and starting drinking at 3 p.m. because uh, we were six months into a pandemic. <laughs> so I was like, you know, when some people are like, I baked bread, I worked out, I found my love of plants. I did all the things. I was like, what are we supposed to be doing? I'm such a fast paced person. I have so much energy. And I feel like this is an unpopular opinion now, but it wasn't before. But like, when the world shut down, my son was like, oh, it was the week before his first birthday. And I was so happy. I had been fighting my job to like work from home permanently. And they were like, well, let's just do like hybrid, you know, make sure to take your extra screen home and take your laptop home. Um, we don't know how long we'll be working from home, blah, blah, blah. And I got so happy. And then once I found out all these things people were doing to bind their time, I was sewing masks. Oh my God, I took up sewing again. I took up cross-stitching again, the baking, the gardening, all the things. So that's what Lauren was doing in September 2020. Look at that. Being proactive, you know? Yeah. Out there on the front line making masks for, you know, the essential workers and anyone else who needed, right? Because there was a shortage, right? Yeah, I was mailing them to the hospitals. 
I just jumped in and started volunteering like right off the bat. <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm the same, the same person. I don't know. <laughs> but I, well, that thank you for that. That's what I want to say. You know, being an essential worker and, and uh, there was a shortage at that time. So to be out there on the front line was, you know, it was a little scary. But at the same time, individuals like you that gave that support. I want to say thank you for that. Well, thanks. Yeah. I don't know. It was fun. So banana bread and drinks. And so that was the pandemic uh, routine. Huh? I mean, that's some of the oh, sourdough, lemon, blueberry bread. Oh, my God. Banana bread. It was all the breads and then I got into making like artisanal sandwiches. So from the garden. So I made fried green tomato BLTs like with homemade bread, homegrown tomatoes. I made my own mayonnaise like it was because you couldn't find bread anywhere. You couldn't find toilet paper or bread. So that's why I was making my own bread. Um, and then I was like, all right, well, let's, this is about to be some zombie apocalypse. Let's start like yoking all of our own stuff. And I was just trying everything. And so, yeah, that's where I was. And, um, you know, everything was slowly opening back up like around like July. And then that's how I was able to get in and get that first mammogram. And then, you know, the bottom fell out. Yeah. I don't want to. Spill your questions and you tell me where you want to go with this. No, you know, that's exactly it. I mean, Lauren was out here. She was working. She was being a giver, putting masks together and, you know, finding creative ways, right? It sounds like you're finding creative ways to make different breads and things like that. And so, you know, life, how were you? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I was a lot lighter. I wasn't worried about all the things I'm worried about now. And I would say, you know, our son, you know, I jumped a little bit. So the world shut down in March and then, you know, we're kind of like July. Um, and then our focus was just like having another baby. It was like, okay, well, we're locked down. Don't know how long, you know, there's a tornado coming through. You have all these storm babies <laughs> pop up nine months later. Um, so, but we had already planned like, you know, our son's a little over one. We'll try for another baby. This is that. And yeah, like I was, that's all I was worried about was progressing in my career. I had just started in tech um, about two years before this. And so I was just, I wanted to progress in my career and keep making, growing my family. That's it. Those were my only concerns. And finding toilet paper somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Lauren, you know, here you are, you're, you're making, making, you know, some advancements career-wise and, and then you go in, right? We go in for these these annual checkups as we're supposed to, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. we miss them, sometimes we don't. So you decided to go in for a mammogram. How was that day? So I was having pain in my armpit, but it also was time for my annual mammogram. So I just remember being very adamant. I was like, can we get as much breast tissue in the machine as possible? Can you check out my armpit? And she was like, yeah, we got some of that tissue in there. And um. And that was it. This was my fourth mammogram. Nothing was crazy, right? Like it was all the other ones have been fine. This was just so I could go about my life for the next year. Right. And then they called me and the woman seemed different, but she was just like, yeah, we found some asymmetry and some calcifications in your mammogram. So we just want to have you back for another look, just, you know, a little more detailed on that side and in that area. I was like, oh, okay. And I was like, should I be concerned? And she's like, not yet, but we just want to see it again. And I was like, okay, well, if you tell me not to be concerned, I'm not concerned. But by the grace of God, um, my OB called me like personally 
Oh, well, I guess I'll tell the whole story because I hadn't been telling the whole story before. And it's not any longer. So I had gone to my OB back in May to get a pre-baby checkup and see if everything was okay. And um, everything was great. July, I actually lost a baby that we were carrying. And um, I asked the substitute OB because my doctor was out with COVID. Um, about the pain in my armpit and he was like oh that's an ingrown hair don't worry about it blah 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 and I was like okay and like first off I was already like just really on guard because I was there for a miscarriage just there for blood work and it was my last appointment um he wasn't like dismissive he was just like half listening right so I don't want to you know to say he had any malice, but it was just like, she doesn't know what she's talking about. And I was dismissed. I wasn't gaslit, right? Like, I don't want to read too much into it. He was just like, she's got a lot going on. I don't know why she's complaining about her armpit. There's a, there's a lot going on right now. So that didn't sit right with me because it did, I didn't feel heard. And I still had my um, referral for my annual mammogram, which was supposed to be months prior, but because of COVID, imaging had been shut down unless it was like a stat and from a doctor, not just an annual. So um, that's why I was so adamant to the mammogram tech. Like, hey, can you please get my armpit in there? Things like that. So that's why my doctor called me. She called to check up on me after the miscarriage had been complete. And because she wasn't there for my appointment because she was out with COVID. So I said, hey, thank you so much for checking in. Like, I just thought that was such a nice touch. And um, I was like, hey, you know, I asked the doctor about my armpit. I had a mammogram. They called me back and they said they saw asymmetry and some calcifications. She's like, that's extremely atypical for your age. I am concerned and I want you to go to the follow-up. Like these calls were maybe an hour apart. And again, like that's just God. That's Those are just angels, right? Because my doctor didn't have to call me. She saw the notes. That's fine, right? She was just calling to check on me mentally and physically because of the miscarriage and um, so that's what's got it all started. And that's the reason I went back for the follow-up. I wouldn't have gone back until maybe the next year. And I don't know if I would have gone back the next year because I felt so silly continuing to go. Everything had been fine and it was four. So I think honestly, in my mind, I was like, I'm going to just stop until I'm 40. Wow. So had that follow-up that led to a biopsy. And on September 4th, I was diagnosed, um, with stage two IDC breast cancer. And Yeah. I didn't have any other symptoms than increased blood pressure and that pain in my armpit. I had no dimpling. I had no nipple discharge. I had no puckering. I had no skin changes. Nothing else. Nothing else. Lauren, that is absolutely amazing. That story. I mean, I, I didn't know that. That's, can you imagine just not going back in, not getting that phone call? I mean, thank God. Thank God for that. And it was because of the lack of any other symptoms and all the things you hear, like, do you feel a lump? No, I had seen my doctor in May. I'd seen that other doctor in July. They both gave me breast exams. I was doing my monthly breast exams around that time because of that pain in my armpit. I was like, okay, okay, is anything else going on? I'm feeling nothing. Two other medical professionals that are breast health professionals did not feel anything. So thank God for those calls. but. I did everything and more than most people do or that the general population is even told to do. And still. So, yeah. What, what do you think, Lauren, for anyone listening out there? Right. Because this could happen to anyone and it could turn it could have turned ugly. Yeah. What do you suggest to them in a situation like this? Right. 
I want to speak with a forked tongue on this one, right? So there's some Southern for you. Um, the one thing I, I love sharing my story because I am all about preventative health. I'm all about getting ahead of it. And that's really difficult when you're facing something like that's such taboo, uh, like cancer, right? Because you're like, okay, well, what I don't know can't hurt. me. That's not true. But what you don't know won't hurt your feelings. The cancer shouldn't hurt your feelings. It's going to hurt everything else. But, you know, that it's stressful. And, you know, I've even had people in my family ask me, why are you looking for something? Why are you chasing after something? I think you want an illness. And I'm like, no, I don't. But ignoring it, and, and that's something that we do in, in our community, like the Black community, because we're gaslit or we're disregarded or we're not heard, things like that. And so we are made to feel silly. And then it's like, that's nothing. Why am I making such a big thing about this? So I love to share my story, but I know that it can scare and trigger some people. And I don't ever want to do that. I don't ever want to just, oh my God, I have a pain. That's cancer. I do that. You don't need to do that. I freak out like that. <laughs> but um, if anyone finds themselves in this situation, I just want them to remember that earlier you find something, the more choices you have. And that's true in every instance. So you always want as many choices as you can have, right? So let's say you start getting your screenings in your late 30s. If you find something or if you find out that you're predisposed to something, um, you can have a preventative mastectomy or you know, an estrogen factory brewing if you're predisposed to something. So I would just say, just know that you're empowering yourself and giving yourself more options, more time and more choices. And then also that can get you on a road to hard conversations, right? Like maybe you're in your late 20s and you haven't even thought about having kids, but you find out you're predisposed, like you have the BRCA gene or um, the CHECK2 gene or something like that. And so then you want to go ahead and freeze your eggs so that when you're 34, you're not faced and only have three weeks to do IBF, right? So just know that you are doing yourself the biggest service that you can finding out what's going on within your body. There it is. Early detection, you know, and yeah. make it sure you stay on top of that. Make sure you stay on top of that. Don't let anything that may be taboo prevent you from moving forward in that. You're dropping gems here, Lauren, and I really appreciate it. So here you go, Lauren, you, you get this news, you go back, you find out what happens next. Well, what happened next was a really fast ride. Um, I met with multiple breast surgeons. And in that time, I had to fire a few physicians. They, they didn't work for me. Like our personalities just didn't jive. And um, when you're assembling your team, literally your X-Man team, because we have like, you know what I mean? We have genetic abnormalities. Like I call my breasties, like we're X-Men. I'm like, who's your character? I'm Storm because I'm Halle Berry all day. Okay. <laughs> um, we like just the light. Can't you tell? Thousand percent. Come on, girl. <laughs> um, but yeah, when you're assembling your team, like during your cancer, getting to any D, like you need a team. We need a quarterback. You need a wide receiver, whatever you want, whatever position you want to play, but you need a surgeon, an oncologist, a radiologist. I mean, I needed three therapists. Like they all had their own, they had their own um, parts. So once I was diagnosed, um, you know, we were in the midst of expanding our family. So the number one thing for me was um, fertility preservation. Um, it is a fact that less than 40%, I think it's around 38% of AYA cancer patients are even given information about preserving fertility um, are even spoken to 
to even see if they have time to do that, where it's believed that like 80% of people do have time because we did a whole cycle in three weeks, right? Um, And I do just want to note that, you know, when I got those previous mammograms, there was nothing of concern on there. So in a year's time, my cancer progressed from nothing to stage two. So it was rather aggressive. But yeah, if you don't know about fertility preservation or if you don't know what your treatment, how your treatment can affect future fertility, then you don't know to ask. And so that's what it looked like for me. Um, I met with my oncologist, my breast surgeon, um, the reproductive endocrinologist, all in about three days. Uh, we had decisions two weeks later I or two days later. I had grants a week later to help pay for that. And then so, yeah, I was diagnosed on September 4th. I started IVF the next week. I had my egg retrieval on October 8th and I had um, my first chemo on October 9th. So, you know, in that time, there was a port placement, there was genetic testing, there was blood tests, there were exams, there were x-rays, there were additional mammograms. I mean, to get all the baselines. I don't know if it worked a full week in September. Yeah. Like I had to use all of my vacation, all of my PTO, all of my sick leave, everything. And then I didn't even know what I was facing coming up. How am I going to feel after treatment starts? How much more can I work? I mean, I was just so blessed to be remote at that time that increased my flexibility because of COVID. So when I say unpopular opinions, things like that, I found those silver linings in the pandemic. And even though I had to go through treatment alone because the pandemic was raging and there wasn't even a vaccine out yet, um, it gave me that flexibility with work. So then I wasn't faced with losing my job like a lot of people are when they're diagnosed. Sure. My goodness, you're talking about a whirlwind. I say that for the listeners. You know, sometimes for those that are newly diagnosed, once that happens, it's, it's, a, it's a runway. And there's a lot of people that need to give you the attention in order for you to be successful in this journey. And so, as you heard Lauren, you're talking about different physicians for different things, um, surgeons, the medical oncologist for chemo, all of these different uh, physicians are, are part of your team and you're assembling them. A cardiologist or an EKG to see if my heart can handle the chemo. Like, I mean, it's only been two and a half years and, you know, like things are just popping up. I'm remembering. Right. And what's the biggest problem is you don't know what you don't know that you need to advocate for your future reproductive rights or, you know, to preserve your fertility. Once you start treatment, it's too late to do anything preventatively or proactively. Right. You can only clean up after and do it after chemo or after you finish immunotherapy, things like that. When your body is healthy enough to do it, And so you're hit with so many requests and so many things you have to do once you're diagnosed that your brain can't possibly fathom all the things that you want to do or that there are things you would want to do in this time. You can't see past staying alive, surviving. So then how am I supposed to live well or get back to whatever baseline I had before or thrive, as a lot of people like to say. And specifically with me and my first um, oncological surgeon, which is why she only lasted about two weeks, um, never looked at me and said, you are going to beat this. You are going to live. So it was in my lymph nodes. And she's like, let's go ahead and biopsy your lymph nodes um, to confirm it's in there because that was where the pain was, right? 
She's like, I already know, but let's go ahead and biopsy it. Like, that's that was a weird statement. And then let's get you a PET scan to make sure it's not anywhere else. Because if it is, then that make that changes everything I've just told you. Like everything I just told you will go out the window. And we'll have to have way more serious conversations instead of you're going to beat this. Let's get this PET scan to ensure it hasn't gone anywhere past your lymph nodes, and then we'll get treatment started. Those things are very similar. They deliver the same met- words, but not the same message. So I'm still, and I honest, personally, I feel like I am in a better place than I was two years ago, but I'm still dealing with her initial words because those are the first cancer words I ever heard from anyone. Wow. And it makes a difference. Like I have breasties whose doctor was like, you're 34, you're going to be this, you're going to be an old woman holding your grandkids. Like, those two interactions are night and day, and that makes a big difference. Like my breasties mentally are like, hey, I'm a survivor. And I'm like, I'm a survivor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it just makes a difference. Like I'm so many steps behind in my mental healing. This is what I talk about so often too, Lauren, is that your mindset, your perspective on how you view this takes you so much further on a journey. Uh, depending on how you see it. And so listening to how it was perceived, here you are, now you're still dealing with the aftermath of that, you know, but it's nice that you were able to see that and advocate for yourself. So that part is amazing. And I hope you guys are seeing and listening to that. Lauren is an advocate for herself. And sometimes you have to take the driver's seat and uh, find that co-pilot that's going to help drive you and navigate you there. So Lauren, let's, let's talk about how this affected your family, because a lot of times that gets left out, you know, having a diagnosis, obviously you're affected. You are the one who dealing with that, but your loved ones also are affected. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I mean, when you're diagnosed, you definitely need to, um, do you have to find your people? So I know there are a lot of people who close to their family don't physically live close to their family. It could be physical or emotional distance. Um, might not have a ton of friends. If you got diagnosed a year, a year ago when there were still lockdowns all over the place, like you're physically alone. Like let's say you're single, let's say you're late 20s, whatever, whatever have you. Um, you need to find your people, whether those are breasties or other people that share your diagnosis online in help groups, support groups, things like that. You've got to have someone to vent to. Um, for me, I'm very fortunate um, that I live very close in proximity to my family. I mean, they're here now with my daughter. <laughs> um, they're here all the time and I love it. Uh, but you need different people to vet too. So I came to this realization the other day, just in a conversation with my breastie. And it's come up quite a few times since with other people. The one thing I told my friend and I told a few other women is your husband and your partner is not your breastie, right? So my husband is like, he is, he's my everything. I talk to him about everything. We both work in the house. We eat four meals a day together because there is a fourth meal, a.k.a. and dessert. Um, But like I cook four meals a day, right? Like we eat all of our meals together. Like our daughter stays home. Our son just started school, things like that. But like, I can't, I can't have a cancer breakdown to him because we went through that together. While he was my caregiver and I was the patient, we experienced everything together. Now, while his experience or 
the depth of the feelings might not have been as deep because he wasn't the patient. Like his healing is on a different, he's on a different healing path, right? And so I don't want to have a regression in my mental healing and then bring him into that and then we both regressed. Like that's what my therapist is for. That's what my breasties are for. Um, he doesn't need to go to retreats with me. He went to a conference with me the other day, but I had like been out of town the week before and I wanted him and my son to come with me and they didn't leave the hotel room. Like it was fine. But I just say that to say like all the things you can confide in a breastie about, like, or again, someone who shares your diagnosis. So the tribulations are how, like how bad the new lust of pain is, right? I can tell you what that feels like, but unless you have felt your bones making bone marrow, you don't know what that feels like. I was 34 years old. Span of two months, I lost the ability to climb the stairs in my house. I just sleep downstairs for months. Like it was crazy. My husband would sleep on the couch next to me because I couldn't get upstairs. So there's just things that like you'll want to talk to people who share your exact journey with or thing, you know, things that you can commiserate on. But you have to understand like everybody's going through it just, you know, in different ways. So you need to find your person for each thing, your vent person, your binge eating person, you're not eating with person, all those things. But that's just the best way I described it. Like your husband or your partner is not your breastie. So, um, yeah. Yeah. So you go through these treatments, Lauren, you're in the pandemic, you go through them, you know, how was that? Was that a rough journey? Did you go to kind of go through that without any hiccups? I went through it without any hiccups. When I went through my chemo teach, um, the nurse was actually one of my friends and she's like, yeah, well, I've never seen anyone not miss a a scheduled treatment um, because of which is a neutropenic fevers and um, just, you know, infections and things like that. I was like, I will make it through. Like we had all of them scheduled and my last one was on January 21st. I'll never forget because it's three days before my husband's birthday. And our first one was on our um, anniversary. Um, but I was like, I will make all of my appointments. I will be finished on January 21st. And I was, and I did. Um, but that was it. It was like a determination. It was a challenge. I wanted to finish. I wanted to get it done. I wanted to kill the cancer. I wanted to be doing something and going to chemo was doing something for two weeks and five, six days. I would sit there. I would wait. Like I would crave the next chemo treatment, even though it sucked, even though I would get super sick for four days, I needed it. And then that progression of like getting past the ill, like the chemo illness was more activity. And so that made me feel good. Um, Working out during it was something I could do. It was taking some power back. Again, silver lining of the pandemic. I do wish a couple of times I could have had someone come and visit me or what have you. But also like you're in a Benadryl coma. Like no one needs to watch me snore with my mouth wide open. Like (laughs) I made myself comfortable in that chemo suite with my socks and my warm blankets and my I was getting Uber Eats delivered because I would be there from like 9 a.m. to like 4.30 p.m. I would bring my laptop. I would work. I would watch, you know, Real Housewives from the night before. I would eat, take a nap. So, yeah, like it, that didn't really bother me. Also, I had a small BBL. So it was like, okay, 
I get to sit here by myself? Sure. In this quiet with this Benadryl? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're killing the cancer. Let's just do it. Yes. But I just found a silver lining. I love that. I love that. And you took the power. You controlled what you could control and you were able to get through that. Thank you so much for really highlighting that too as well. Appreciate it. Yeah. So here we are now, right? You finish your chemo and it's like a whirlwind. Like everyone gives you the attention, right? Oh my God, come here, come see me, come talk to this, right? Hey, you're important to us. We want to make sure we're testing you. We're getting it done. You go through all the treatments and then you finally finish. How was that feeling? It was a shallow victory. It was very empty. Um, because you think that what you're doing is climbing towards ringing the bell and finishing treatment. I've never felt more poor. Like I've never felt so poorly. Um, chemotherapy is cumulative. So I had six sessions, 18 weeks of this mustard gas, like building up in my body. And I mean, my insides were like liquefied. I felt terrible. I had such steroid bloat. Like I looked terrible. I gained so much weight. Everybody was like, I thought you lose weight on cancer. Thank you, or on treatment. Thank you. That's helpful. Um, so you told, you're telling me I look bad. Like, you know, I ring the bell and then I go home and I collapsed. Like felt terrible, felt gross. Couldn't do anything. Again, couldn't climb the stairs. Could barely work out. The nausea is ravaging my bones. Um, and then you still got immunotherapy, but then surgery starts. So I had six weeks of just planning and things like that. And then I had surgery and then six weeks after that, I had radiation. So it was just like, it was like that little graph on the treadmill at the gym. It was like, ah, I did it. No, you did not. How long is this race? Like they told me a year. And yeah, like I was finished with immunotherapy and I was kind of at the end of surgery after a year, but then I had a bunch of hiccups. Like I had, um, staff and I had MRSA. So that was twice as many surgeries to undo what the infections did and then redo the reconstruction. So like for every surgery I had, I had two more to fix the infections and then go back and try to fix the aesthetics of it all. So in 18 months, I had 11 surgeries wow. and I'm still not finished. I just saw my plastic surgery yesterday and I've got another one scheduled um, like at the end of this year. So, you know, three years later, I'm still in surgery trying to get semblance of what was there before, but not possible. It's just, it's got to be what I have now. Yeah. That's where we are now. <laughs> well, I just say this, Lauren, I mean, you've gone through all of these surgeries. You've gone through the journey of this cancer. But I don't want to leave out how you became this advocate. Talk to us about some of the amazing things you've done since the diagnosis, right? I mean, you're an author now, right? You've done some. Just talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. So, you know, one day I woke up, it was after the first surgery, after my mastectomy. And I said, I did that. I beat cancer. Like I beat it all the way out. Like, Full biological response. I didn't, radiation, I did not want to. Um, but I was like, there's nothing I can't do. Like my son was 17 months old when I was diagnosed. Like that is a very active age, very engaged age. Um, I worked all the way through. I lived in a pandemic. Like I did those things. And I was like, there's nothing else I can't do. 
Um, during treatment, I looked around, there was no one my age, the women of color around me, right? So there was no one that was in my Venn diagram that I could like 100% relate to that before I found my people online. Then when I found people online, um, they didn't have the information that I had found or that I had or that I had been given. And then I realized like, we need to share this information. Like there's no gatekeeping. We need to, there needs to be full transparency. Like we're literally dealing with lives. So then that's when I decided to write my book, which is Type A Guide to Cancer. Um, and all I did was I just took all of my notes in my journal, my diary entries, and I organized them into chapters based on like chemotherapy, treatment, when you're diagnosed, IVF, like grants so that there's money getting out there to the people who need it. So if you do lose your job or not, like cancer is expensive. Even if you have good insurance, like treatment is expensive. So I got all that set together and I, you know, my book was published um, all one year after I was diagnosed. Um, I was, re I'm really proud of that. Like I've never thought, I thought about writing a book, but like who doesn't? Everybody thinks their life is interesting. Like, and I'm not saying that my life is interesting more than anyone else, but this is really just to get the information out about kind of being blindsided even though like I went in for my mammogram like I didn't expect to have cancer so just being blindsided by that when you definitely have different priorities hanging out and um how to deal with it and then I wrote from there I was just like well I did this let me do that uh there's nothing that can stop right so I wrote another book um called too many cells and that is um a diverse and inclusive book written to children about how they can help their parents or a loved one while they're in treatment and just explaining to them all the parts of treatment and what that might look like, even hair loss and things like that. Um, and then most recently, I wrote my third book, which is Type A Guide to Survivorship, which again is my journal entries and all the things I've learned from my therapist and my oncologist and my breast surgeons and things like that. Again, to like get that information out. So while you might not be a woman or you might not be a person of color, the type A guide to survivorship is for everyone who has survived any diagnosis. I cover mental health, PTSD, um, coping techniques, anxiety, um, survivor guilt. I have some of my breasties tap in for medical gaslighting, um, metastasis. I have I have quite a few friends that are. Um, metastatic and have stage four and so just what that looks like coming from someone who is living with that um so yeah like I just want to talk about all these topics so that we can so it's not taboo because once you have taboo and then someone who hasn't spoken on it finds themselves in that position then you've lost out on a lot of opportunity of choices Right. And so then if we do talk about it and make it commonplace and it's just like, OK, well, my screenings are done. It's just not like, oh, I have to go get screened. It's like we all get screened for things like people don't shudder at like a diabetes screening or when you get your glucose tested. So let's just make it a, an annual thing for all the things. Absolutely. Lauren, you are phenomenal. I thank you so much for coming on here and sharing your story, sharing your journey, talking about your books that where people can benefit from. This is exactly what people need out here, especially on this cancer journey. So thank you so much for giving us your time. Before we let you go, Lauren, let me always ask the question, what was life like before 
or as far as how you saw it and how is it now? What has changed? I love that question. Um, life was BS before. <laughs> uh, I'll, because I'll say I had priorities and I thought I had them in order. Um, nothing ever came before my family, but I had things that were tied. Right. So my career progression was tied with the importance of my family because that supported my family. Right. Um, money comes and goes. Everybody can remember a time where they didn't have money or they didn't have as much money as they wanted. And I have never been more successful in my life and in my career, all these things, than when I put my family first. People respect that. When they when you put up boundaries, people respect that. They might not outwardly present that they respect it, but they either respect you or envy you for it. And I'm just now still putting up boundaries where they need to go. But um, yeah, life before was just, it was messy and it was busy. But that was also pre-pandemic. Before people had to sit down, had to be still, had to sit with their thoughts. So um, again, that's a silver lighting for me. And now life is great. Um, Another reason, I mean, I know you know, but I want to tell the listeners, another reason why Lucy is just like such a vibe and a whole thing is that um, I found out I was pregnant with her two years to the day that my loss was confirmed that led to finding my cancer. So like, again, that's God. Again, that's just angels. It's just this cyclical thing where like, I have seen the purpose for my pain. Like I have realized what that was about. That first baby saved my life. And then what whoever those angels are sent me Lucy. And there was always supposed to be at least a second baby, right? So I think that, um, yeah, I just had my priorities kind of out of whack. And now um, there's nothing more important than my health and my family because anything else can be acquired or bought or given to you. You can't be given health. You can regain your health yourself, but you can't be given health. You can't be given um, more time. And so, uh, yeah, like everything I do now is with just more purpose. I think everything I do now has a purpose and I don't sit and take stock of that it's just the way that I truly live now like I I don't drink anymore I make sure I exercise every single day and then that's that yeah and I'm really grateful for it because I don't think anything else would have brought me to a screeching halt to take stock in my life and my um my activities within my life short of cancer I love it. Lauren. Yeah. Lauren with a purpose now. We love it. Yeah. You know, not didn't have purpose before, but Lauren with a purpose now and boundary. Watch out. <laughs> Watch out. This purpose is jet fuel now. Nothing stands in my way anymore. Let's go. Lauren, Lawrence Harpley, thank you so much for joining us here on All Talk Oncology. It's a privilege having you. And uh, as I say to all my listeners, you're not alone in this. We're in this together. Thank you so much. Yes, Lauren. You thank you. Thank you so much. This is Kenny Perkins signing out. Kenny Perkins, aka your cancer guy. And until again, I'm out. So again, I want to thank everyone who tuned in today. 
Here's where you will find up-to-date cancer discussions with industry experts and leading professionals that can help you in your cancer fight. You are not alone in this. We are in this together. I'm your host, Kenny Perkins, a.k.a. The Cancer Guy. And until again, I'm out.